All right. And when I say all right, I really don't mean anything by it. Although you might have heard me say this before the news, I will say it again. You know, days like this are a little bit of a challenge because, yes, for example, Nancy Pelosi right now is saying that the House, if Trump will not uh, resign immediately, the House will launch into an impeachment process next week. That's uh, like a pretty big story. It might even cause us to revive our old podcast, Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. So, you know, on a day like this, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't be talking about frivolous culture, but maybe we should. And it doesn't matter because we are. Um, That is what we are going to do. We are going to talk about, I I think, kind of almost especially frivolous culture. (laughs) If if anything, we have resisted the temptation to find more worthy and weighty and improving topics to discuss today. Instead, we're going to talk about the first viral phenomenon of 2021. That would be the Bean Dad. The Bean Dad. You know about the Bean Dad. Or you don't. But how can you not know about the Bean Dad at this point? We'll also talk about, and here you know we've sealed our fate. We are going to talk about the apparent, and I don't mean to giggle about it. It's sad when any couple breaks up. Uh, the apparent uh, breakup, uh, if, if, well, yeah, it, the apparent breakup is the way to put it, I think, between Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. And then we are going to talk about what I think is kind of a, a piece of interesting fluff, but maybe it's more than fluff, but maybe it's not. Anyway, it's Bridgerton. A lot of people are watching it uh, and we couldn't resist it. So that's what we're going to do today. And when I say we, I mean Teresa Kramer, uh, freelance writer, editor, co-founder of Quiet Corner Communications. And I would also say co-host of Midlit Podcast, which I was recording with her and Jim Chapdelaine and Rebecca Castellani last night. Very exciting. Lots of fun. Uh, unlike the nose, you get to drink red wine while you do it. Uh, Rich Holland is a principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center and Commissioner on Cultural Affairs for the City of Hartford. So they are both with us. Um, so I guess, unless it's somebody else is feeling very brave, I guess it will fall to me to try to explain Bean Dad. Unless, Teresa, you're, you're really feeling game about this. I don't know that I'm feeling game about this because if it wasn't... For this show, I still would be one of those people who didn't really understand what Bean Dad was. Well, maybe uh, maybe nobody understands what Bean Dad was. I will try to explain it, and the two of you can shout out corrections at me. I think that's a good okay. format. Um, so this involves a man named John Roderick, uh, who was already kind of minimally famous for a podcast and some songwriting and theme songs and stuff like that, uh, and, and kind of, you know, a, a bit of a, a rascal on Twitter already. Uh, and he he uh, took it upon himself to explain over the course of, I believe, 28, t- uh, 28 tweets, uh, 23 tweets, I'm sorry, um, a, a sort of battle, a standoff that was going on between him and his nine-year-old daughter. She wanted, she was hungry, <laughs> she was hungry, <laughs> and, she, and so he suggested she make beans. Uh, she couldn't, did not know how to open the can. She, he made her go get the can opener, so they, I think we now know they have, you know, sort of that rotary style uh i guess they're all rotary style the kind that kind of has a gear you know and that you turn the little handle and it it cranks and it cuts into the can anyway she couldn't figure out how to do it and so six hours went by and there were tears there was anger and then there was i guess sort of a eureka moment when the beans got open and he then became known as bean dad uh, and and there was a lot of debate about bean dad a lot was written about bean dad 
mostly making fun of Bean Dad, sometimes also expressing real anger at, at what appeared to be an unnecessary level in, of inflexibility bordering on, you know, abuse would be the wrong word, but, but there was a way in which there was an unkindness uh, in the way that he described what was going on between him and his daughter. It may have been somewhat theatrical on his part anyway. So and then he quit Twitter and then he now he's apologized. I think he's probably apologized for more crimes than he actually committed, which might even be something that you should do these days. Uh, and I think I think that's where the story currently rests. So um, each of our panelists has very interesting things to say about this. Although as today wore on, it became clear we were actually more interested in talking about can openers than talking about <laughs> the bean dad. But let's, let's do the bean dad first. Rich, I'm going to start with you, I guess, and say, sure. I mean, one, one thing, whenever I sort of see something that, you know, a meme that goes viral or whatever you want to call this, I think there must be recognition here a little bit. Like I sort of recognize myself a tiny bit. I'm sure my son could come up with some instances in which I was that inflexible guy who took it too far. Is that part of what people are reacting to? Um, I think that what people are reacting to is less what he did, um, you know, letting his daughter do this, and more about how he paraded it to public view. Um, in that he uh, he opened it up for a critique on his parenting, um, it, you know, by sharing what he did in a point by point detailed view. Um, uh, you know, I think that if uh, you know if I were hanging out at some cocktail party with this dude, and he said, uh, "Yeah, you know, I let my daughter try and figure out how to you know open things up with a can opener, and it took a long time, but eventually she figured it out." Um, I might have given him some uh, parenting high fives, right? Um, but the breakdown of um, of his uh, of his masochism, and um, or is it sadism? I never remember which is. This would be sadism. <laughs> yeah, there's there, there's a sort of rubbing his hands together in Doctor oh, Evil like glee. Absolutely, you know, and particularly, yeah. and and I just love how the uh, the the article pointed out that it's not like he had anything to do either, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's not like she was interrupting him with some, you know, uh, crazy brain surgery thing that he was getting ready for. Uh, no, he was just screwing around doing jigsaw puzzles, you know, and, right. uh, and decided that he was going to take his... First of all, um, I'd like to add, uh, from a parent perspective, uh, if... My nine-year-old says, I'm hungry and I'm going to make myself something to eat. Mm -hmm. I'm going to reward that as much mm -hmm. as I humanly possibly can, right? right. <laughs> you know, that strikes me as a good move. So uh, pretty much everything that this guy did was, you know, was not a good idea. Uh, in particular, uh, the magnifying glass that he put on his bad ideas to the universe who's eager um, for this kind of thing uh, to weigh in on. Um, you know, you got to be careful what you ask people to weigh in on if you don't want their opinion because <laughs> you're going to get it right now. All right. So, Teresa, weigh in on this. Oh, have, has Rich left any stones for you to turn over? Well, I'm just a little skeptical sort of on all levels about the sort of veracity of his uh, his telling of the events. I don't I don't really believe there's any world in which six hours go by and a nine year old is still doing the same thing. Um, 
or that mom hasn't come home and been like, you're doing what you're ma- you're forcing her to open this can for how many hours now? And it just, you know, but I think Rich is right that it's really the like, it almost seems like he's trying to publicly humiliate her after refusing to just show her how to use a can opener even once in her short life. Yeah. I, I, and at the same time, I sort, I sort of, um, I don't quite buy the outrage about this. Like I get it. He comes off as a jerk, but like I said, I don't think it really happened exactly the way he pretends it does. Um, And there's been this, you know, outcry to turn this into like a larger story about the current state of our country instead of just what appears to me to be a really super lazy dad. Right. So Ken Jennings, yeah. Ken Jennings yeah. got dragged into this somehow. Ken Jennings of, uh, of yeah. Jeopardy, Jeopardy fame. And he says uh, he knows this guy. And I think there's a podcast with him. He says, if this reassures anyone, I personally know John to be a, a loving and attentive dad who B tells heightened for effect stories about his own irascibility on like 10 podcasts a week. And then he attacked Twitter. He said, this site is so dumb. Well, I mean, <laughs> Mr. Roderick did yeah. do 23 tweets about this. You can hardly blame Twitter uh, mm-hmm. for that. But so I want to pivot a little bit and say that so there I, I always claim that there are 10 Colin McEnroe rules of culture except I can only ever think of one of them um, <laughs> but I know there's 10 but um, but the one that I can always think about is that we we get excited about something we celebrate a thing when it's in its twilight you know that that's really the time we started having Wild West shows in America when the Wild West was going away you know we we started having TV programs like Picket Fences and Northern Exposure and Twin Peaks when quirky little idiosyncratic towns were going away, all of them having CVSs and Boston markets and stuff like that. So I feel like there is some can opener anxiety uh, here in this story, Rich. There's a way in which can openers were never any good anyway, but they're also, I don't know, I don't know, like I buy a lot of canned dog food. And all of them have those ring tops because dogs do not know how to use can openers, uh, even if you give them six hours. Um, but I feel like there's something happening here that involves the object. And here I have a design guy right here on the air with me. Yeah. Them. So um, I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Um, I don't believe that the issue is with the can opener. Um, <laughs> I think that these things were brilliant. Uh, I have several of them. Uh, I have the mechanical geary one uh, with the plastic sleeve handle that was from uh, most likely the 60s. Uh, I think there's still an electric one hanging around that was a brilliant design. Um, uh, not because of the the lazy factor of an electrical motor that made this thing happen, but because it had a little magnet that held the top up. And that is one of the ultimate problems with the can opener model um, when we're using a horizontal um, uh, lever uh, and and a wheel, um, that there's nothing, that that there's no resistance unless whatever's in the can is really kind of packed in there tightly. Um, and uh, I have one of those uh, fully manual ones that looks like, you know, a little hatchet that you kind of crank around the, the can, which is perfect. Um, uh, the issue for me is not about the opening device. It's about um, uh, the, the kind of lack of quality that goes into the manufacturing of cans right now. Uh, the crimping isn't strong and it's not tight. Right, so as you kind of go around this thing, 
uh, the edge of the can starts to expand and open and there's just really no way of opening this thing, you know, other than putting it on the ground and jumping up and down until the whole thing explodes. Um, so the problem is not the can opener. And, uh, and I think that, um, that that was a lesson that this guy could have actually uh, explained to, to his daughter is that the mechanical tool, the simple mechanical device is actually a brilliant thing and it's time tested uh, that he could have had a conversation with her about the uh, economics of trying to deliver products cheaper and cheaper, you know, and uh, and end up with really like awful cans. <laughs> okay, that's going to be a hard act to follow, Teresa. Uh, I, but you can I do mean, it. Yeah, because I have a hatred of can openers to rival. Uh, you know, bean dad's <laughs> general irascibility. Um, unlike you, Colin, our, most of our dog food does still have, um, it does still need to be opened with a can opener. And um, we've had to resort to the old timey can openers, like the kind you might take on a camping trip or something yeah. where you just kind of pop it because inevitably those turny ones just like stop getting purchase on the cans. You can't even puncture it or it won't move. I, maybe it is the can's fault, but all I know mm -hmm. is that I end up screaming at the can opener. And ah. so I really, I, I feel the pain here. And those electric ones, you know, my grandmother used to have one of those ones that's mounted under the cabinet and you could just stick. But I used to, I remember watching the can just go around and round in circles without the top ever coming off. Like it was sometimes hard to see what you were doing and get it in the right place. So I've just reverted, you know, I'm one, I'm one step above just using a rock to beat open a can. <laughs> I just, I just use like the, the most simple one I can find that has no moving parts and those work like a dream. So and it takes much, much less than six hours to figure out how to use one. Right. So those are the way to go. It sounds mm -hmm. like we are we are not really going to put can openers in that category of things like I don't know watches with rotary dials and things like that that we sort of suspect a coming generation of children will, will not really experience or understand or n know how to deal with maybe the can openers is here for longer. I will say that the, in defense of the kind that this family the Ralston family whatever their name is had um, you know, which is, yeah, it's the kind with the little wheel um, and, and then the, the knob that you turn. These are hard to describe. Rich did such a good job. But uh, I, one of the things that I did like to steal a phrase from Nicholson Baker was the felt crunch of the initial insertion mm -hmm. uh, of the can when the seal actually does break. And there's often a very satisfying little hiss. Uh, of air that comes out, but it's before you start turning, you know, just as you make that initial contact. But Rich, I think w one of your points might be one of the worst experiences is to have th that p type of can opener kind of lose the plot repeatedly, you know, every 20 degrees or so exactly. around that circle. There's that, but you, I get the sense and um, we're so, I don't know who's replaced one of these things um, ever. <laughs> Uh, I think that um, that the one that I had might have actually belonged to my to my parents, you know. So this thing's been around for like four years or so. Um, in thinking through the mechanics of it, I just wonder if we were supposed to sharpen it at some point. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Well, I think. I think what you're supposed to do is period. I mean, first of all, that would that would sort of posit, Rich, a world in which Oxo grips or anybody else 
wants you to keep your can opener for a long time as opposed to buying a new one. They don't get any money if you sharpen the little thingy bob. That's not a win. That's not a win for OXO or yeah. anybody else. It's not but, like a Gillette razor, right? No. It's 15 bucks on Amazon to get a new one. That's what they want you to do. Um, all right. So I guess we have to segue from there. Not that I feel like we would need to reserve an enormous amount of time. Uh, for uh, Kanye uh, and Kim and their breakup, which like everything else, I mean, involving Kardashians is something that doesn't happen out of sight for the most part, or at least a lot of it doesn't. They get as much of the iceberg above the water as they possibly can uh, so that we can all get a good look at it. So I don't know, Teresa, uh, I wish I had a, an immaculately worded question to begin this conversation. Just get us started. Yeah, I mean, this is the rumors are both surprising and completely unsurprising at the same time, right? Because who over the last four years hasn't wondered how she's been putting up with him, you know, as he relaunches these campaigns and goes out on his uh, MAGA hat wearing, you know, rants. Um, meanwhile, she's working behind the scenes to have prisoner after prisoner get early release and doing like real work and she's got to deal with his public antics but at the same time I also kind of thought well I guess she just really loves him and doesn't care you know like <laughs> like she's she's willing to put up with this because it's clearly you know stemming from his mental illness but I guess at, at some point she hit her limit and it'll just sort of be interesting to see what finally pushed her over the edge that we we may never know that but yeah. and there's so many also salient possibilities I, oh, there's so, no way he's not going to tell us what what that was well, i feel no, like that show. Well, actually so, rich, yeah go ahead rich go ahead so i think much like um and why i kind of look at this at my spectator role in the kim and kanye story with you know with interest or i'm kind of a fly on the wall looking at myself as a fly on a wall looking at Kim and, and, uh, and Kanye, um, is that I think that this is, ex the more we're talking about this right now, it's exactly the same as being that story, wherein he is a parent theater. Uh, this strikes me as its relationship theater, right? Mm -hmm. um, that uh, the, the chaos and the drama and all of what goes on between them, um, uh, whether it's a folie à deux or not, however we want to unpack their relationship, it serves them both, right? Um, and uh, the spectacle that is who they are uh, has to be of service in some way, right? Um, and, uh, and I'm fascinated, uh, you know, not about whether uh, Kanye is really crazy because that's still like up in the air with me, you know? Um, and uh, whether uh, Kim... Kim, the lawyer who's releasing people from prison, uh, you know, weighs out with the other Kims that we know. Um, it's all just, you know, these little sort of um, mini episodes of stuff that happen uh, um, that have no real continuity whatsoever. Um, it's not a clear narrative. Um, and I think so much of that is because uh, the narrative structure is removed 
and these episodes are thrown out there and we're forced to fill in the narrative. So I'm listening to how Teresa fills in the narrative and I'm listening to how, you know, team divorce fills in versus team reconciliation uh, <laughs> fills, in the, <laughs> fills in the narrative. And it's, you know, I, I think it's beautiful, cheap labor uh, uh, that these storytellers are, are doing using the internet, forcing us to be uh, the script writers and producers on this thing uh, that we're following. And um, I find that kind of really, really fascinating. I have no idea what's going on with their relationship. And every time I make up a story, I kind of giggle at myself. Okay, I'm going to, I can't believe that I do have opinions about this, but I do. Uh, and I'm going to weigh in with just a couple of them. One of them is, and so I tried to build a Papulian through line to from here to Bridgerton, which we'll be talking about in a second. And, and I am perfectly happy to have both panelists slap me down uh, about this if they feel it's appropriate. But so one of the dynamics in Bridgerton that you that kind of emerges is that the generation that's first born or the first born of a generation have to perform with a certain level of seriousness about all the things that are at least important to this particular group of Regency nobles, you know, and there's a little less wiggle room for, for frivolity or, or even for the indulgence of artistic passions or, or anything that's kind of uh, out of the very circumscribed set of norms and that if you're second or third born boy you lose a lot in terms of status and 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 what's given to you and stuff like that but you have the opportunity maybe to pursue your passion that point is argued by a gay uh, artist uh, and uh, that, that he can do these things because he doesn't really have to run stuff. Uh, and there's sort of a way in which that, I'm, so my Papulian through line is there's a little bit of that going on with Kanye and Kim, that Kim really is running some kind of empire, you know, and, and yes, she's gone to the trouble of getting a law degree, and, and she very, very carefully controls information uh, about that empire uh, to the point of kind of co-opting a whole network E uh, to just be one long series of Kardashian press releases and Kanye has acted a little bit acted a little bit more like a second or third born person of this nobility that yes he obviously has some kind of persistent mental illness but also he can just throw himself into his passions he doesn't have to worry so much whether he's seeing the right thing I mean at one point he talked in a way that was clearly not agreed upon in advance about how they contemplated having an abortion uh, which is a, not a story that Kim Kardashian wanted to uh, put out at the time. And, and there is maybe a little bit of the push and pull between the person who's running a thing in a very serious way for good or ill, that would be Kim, uh, and somebody who is pursuing his passions and instincts uh, driven by the, the kinds of high passions that rage inside an artist, including an artist with significant psychological problems. All right, that, that's the end of my speech. That's all I got. Uh, I think that that's, so Colin, I I totally get that. That's a piece of it. But I think that also embedded in this this firstborn um, uh, story, uh, which I think tracks all the way through um, uh, both being being that this is getting ridiculous. <laughs> tracks from, <laughs> from being is that, it trying to point uh, out that Kim is actually the middle child? Right. Yeah. Oh, no, it doesn't. Oh. Well, I didn't know that. No. Oh, that no, was the has... middle child that he was torturing? No, no, no. 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 She the Kim, middle, is, Kim, Kim is the middle child. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she is. All right. So, 
that kind of fell apart. When, well, um, yeah, my argument. I'm going to. I'm going to say my argument doesn't fall apart because she's symbolically the yes. alpha, the alpha child she of, of that yeah. union. I'm going to cling. Right. I'm going to cling to this totally <laughs> specious thing I've set up. Anyway, right. continue to, to, to the role, if not the sequence. Yeah. Um, uh, I think the other thing that's that's happening is uh, is how we push um, uh, our children and how. Uh, uh, we push people into these sort of pageantry, um, uh, spectator uh, uh, places of being, you know, under the, the guise of spectatorship. Um, uh, and, you know, that to me is, uh, is another big question that goes through all three, right? You know, what happens when we invite spectacle? Um, you know, what are the scrutinies uh, that we fall under? Um, uh, when we do that, if I take a look at, you know, uh, the, the, uh, being dad thinking that he was inviting, uh, um, you know, putting, making a spectacle of his daughter, uh, ultimately making, you know, a spectacle of himself. Right. So that didn't play out right. You know, because you can't control the spectator and what they're going to do with the narrative. Um, I think that, uh, to your point, um, Kim is completely trying to, um, uh, to control, uh, her presence and her visibility uh, in front of uh, this audience, and um, you know, and it's all over the place where that's going, right? You know, so you she can't control what uh, the perspectives are of her, you know, no matter how much of a of a media network that she has, you know, handling her press releases, right? Um, that the uh, that the uh, organism of spect of spectators. Uh, has their own groove and their own vibe and their own uh, unpredictability, right? So in a lot of ways, um, I think that uh, Kanye has been, uh, has been a gift uh, to Kim um, uh, because when things go like really nuts, it's about Kanye and really not about Kim anymore, right? But if I think of the beginning of Kim's career, the big scrutiny uh, was not on Kanye, it was on Kim and the, these, um, you know, sort of misogynistic ideas of what a woman can't and can't be and, you know, and, uh, and what virtue looks like and what virtue doesn't look like, right? Um, was uh, what encapsulated uh, the beginning of her visibility. You know, and, um, and now uh, we've got Kanye kind of, um, taking, you know, helping her <laughs> have more kind of gravitas in an interesting way. All right. Um, I'm being told by producer Jonathan McPants that we need to go to a break here. However, I feel as though Teresa Kramer is entitled to the last word. So hold your answer down to 27 minutes. Uh, but yes, uh, speak, Teresa Kramer. Answer, answer, or, or elaborate. I just want to give the couple my best wishes and hope that everything turns out okay. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I would also like to say that thanks to the Bean Dad, Kanye mm -hmm. and Kim were not the most frivolous thing that we talked about, I think, in this first segment. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you, Bean Dad. All right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Bridgerton. All 
All right. Bridgerton takes place in Regency England. I don't know if we're ever given an exact year, but I bet uh, McPants will try to look that up right now. Um, but I'm, I'm putting it somewhere in the early 19th century because Queen Charlotte is uh, very much in evidence. Uh, and uh, it is the story mainly, although it has a sprawling cast and quite a few subplots, but the main plot involves uh, a beautiful young debutante named Daphne, uh, she of the Bridgerton family, uh, who uh, must, as all uh, oldest daughters must must seek uh, a, a, an adequate um, or better than adequate husband. Uh, she concocts a ruse with um, Lord Hastings uh, or the, the Duke of Hastings. I got to get all these titles right and I'm just not good at it either. Uh, but the Duke of Hastings uh, and they uh, conduct what is a, a, a not entirely sincere romance when they are secretly just friends. But of course, if you've ever watched any kind of movie like this or read any kind of romantic book, you know that they're in the process of falling in love pretty much from the get-go. So that's maybe not the most novel plot idea you've ever heard. But there are some things that do make the series unusual and special. Uh, it is uh, produced by Shonda Rhimes, she of Grey's Anatomy and Scandal uh, and How to Get Away with Murder. Uh, and let's hear a little bit of Bridgerton. You, know, you will hear that self-same Daphne Bridgerton, uh, played by Phoebe Dynavore, talking to her brother, uh, Anthony Bridgerton, played by Jonathan Bailey. Here we go. Lord Burbrick is harmless. There'll be others. Lady Whistledown has all but declared me ineligible. Worthy of the affection of a detestable simpleton and no one else. Tell me, what others should ever want such damaged goods now? You speak as if Lady Whistledown were to be held in higher regard than Her Majesty the Queen herself. You give far too much credit to some anonymous scribbler. These musings, they're not true. Only they are true, brother, and they are true because of you. You managed to scare every worthy suitor away. Whistledown has merely reported it. I am looking up for you. I am protecting you. It is my duty. And what of my duty? You have no idea what it is to be a woman. What it might feel like to have one's entire life reduced to a single moment. This is all I have been raised for. This is all I am. I have no other value. If I am unable to find a husband, I should be worthless. Daphne, you're a Bridgerton. Would be easier if I were not. By the way, I've seen that horse in so many things, and he's, he always just he nails those lines. Um, so, um, but first of all, I'm being told uh, that the first thing you see in the series uh, or hear in the series is uh, Lady Whistledown. Uh, Lady Whistledown, by the way, is sort of you know a early 19th century Substack newsletter writer uh, who puts out these pamphlets, which are just pourings over of the do social doings and romances of nobility. Nobody knows who she really is. We know she's. Julie Andrews, at least that's who's voicing all that. Uh, and uh, anyway, we were told that it was 1813, so, which is almost exactly what I, you know, so I would have guessed somewhere right, right around in there based on what you can see there. So, what, to, well, I mean, I think the first question, uh, and I'm going to get to have Teresa get us started this time. Teresa, I think the first question is is this just delightful fluff? Or is there some meat on the bones of this that, you know, is kind of really worth turning over in your mind? I mean, I think it's definitely delightful fluff that in sort of Shonda fashion makes some attempts to sort of weasel some ideas in mm -hmm. there so that you have no choice but to think about them. Because for me, some of the most enjoyable characters in this are not 
the sort of main characters where we're supposed to care about their romance. It's the side characters like Penelope or Eloise, the sister, who's like a little proto-feminist and who just keeps complaining about being expected to have a debut and get married. And she keeps trying to like talk her mom into um, letting her put it off in some way. And so there are all these other little side characters that I, I think bring up these side issues, like the um, the gay brother that you referenced earlier, Colin. But when it all comes down to it, I think it is just sort of delightful fluff. You have the floor, Rich Holland. Oh, it's totally delightful fluff. And, <laughs> um, and I expected it. I expected to not like it because, you know, uh, I get I, I seem to get called in on on this show a lot when there's um, uh, <laughs> something around royalty and you know in extreme amounts of privilege and colonizing uh, and you know and it's usually not a one hour or two hour thing to watch but episode after episode of stuff that makes me pull my hair out um, you know that I'm yelling at my screen about you know, that I would yell at my screen. It's like, I've been watching this for six hours and I have not seen a black person yet. Um, what universe is this in? And, um, and that wasn't the case this time, right? And, uh, and instead, um, I found myself yelling at my screen about something else about the fact that there actually were black people <laughs> in this film. It's like, wait, you know, you stripped away their black identity. You, you know, you've changed so much uh, that um, that you've managed to uh, completely um, sabotage the the conversation in a way around uh, colonization and you know and around the period in the you know around 1813 um, around uh, this idea of um, of Queen Charlotte and uh, and the beginnings of the uh, slave abolition uh, which would be what about 20 years later or so um in in uh in britain um so you know so there's this this ripe narrative that's actually underneath uh this in this entire story that just got glossed over and got treated in as a one or two line uh statements about you know about how quickly uh, the black nobility in this, you know, this manufactured black nobility in this uh, series can easily lose that, you know, if they don't uh, perform at a level of excellence, right? But that's a throwaway line, right? Um, you know, there are one or two throw, two or three throwaway lines like this that I've that I've noted in six episodes. Um, that uh, to your to your point, Teresa, makes you feel like, oh, this is the episode where it's going to get. <laughs> where it's going to get real, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, um, you know, then they went to like two and a half episodes of nothing but sex. Right. You know, yeah, this is, it's sort of, you know, it sort of harks back to our, our first conversation. It's, it's six hours and you're thinking pretty soon she's going to learn how to open the can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. And nope, not quite. So, um, so, yeah, we should say that this takes place in a kind of alternative history environment. Mm -hmm. uh, there are ways in which it goes well beyond that. Uh, every time people walk into a beautiful ball with a lovely chandelier uh, in 1813, there's a string quintet uh, playing like Billie Eilish's bad guy or some Ariana Grande tune or something. Yeah. So there's some like Maroon the, five. Yeah, there's a little fun that is had with all that. I didn't catch on to that until they played bad guy. And I, I thought, wait a second. Um, so, but they, they're also kind of, they just 
toy with very briefly a narrative that's not entirely fanciful. So Queen Charlotte, mm-hmm. wife of George III, uh, was rumored or discussed e- even by contemporaries as someone who might, who, she's actually the word mulatto was used to refer to her uh, by, by certain people anyway at that time, the theory being that there was a black branch of Portuguese royalty that was, was part of her Ancestry.com. Uh, and she uh, is played by somebody who uh, doesn't look like any of the uh, the whitened up portraits of Queen Charlotte, but played by somebody I believe is who is from Guyana, uh, an, an actor from Guyana in, in this. And then, yeah, there are a lot of other black characters, notably the Duke of Hastings, the romantic lead in this story. Uh, his name is Roger Jean Page. I think we all agree he's going to have a really, really big career starting very soon. He's going to be a superhero of some kind. I think it's sort of a question of which superhero he's going to be. Uh, A lot of good things are going to happen to him. But, you know, I mean, in a way, Teresa, I think one of the problems is if they really wanted to go that way and say, well, that's really real. And since Queen Charlotte had 13 kids who survived childhood, um, there would be a lot of people ultimately populating not only the British royalty, but the royalty of Europe in general, because they all intermarried, who were, in fact, uh, at least somewhat black. Uh, And you know, they just sort of pick it up and drop it. I think it's in episode four. Mm-hmm. There's like a conversation and then that's it. I mean, it seems to me if you're going to do that, you got to lean into it instead of just having these people who are, for the most part, inexplicably black walking around for six hours. Uh, yeah. right, go ahead. I mean, I don't I think Shonda's M.O. is sort of to create a diverse cast and let it be right. Like that's just the world as it's reflect, she's just trying to reflect the real world. And even though the real world at this time probably didn't look a whole lot like this, um, you know, she's taking cues because you can't sort of separate this from Hamilton. I don't think like it's, it's sort of a very similar idea of colorblind casting, but in order for it to truly be colorblind casting, like you can't mention it. Right. Like you can't you can't take that deep dive into it. And I I don't think her purpose here is like there. She may be hoping that people like you, Colin, pick up on the history here. But for the most part, I think she's just trying to normalize this idea of a more diverse casting and putting the best actor in the role, regardless of their color. Rich. Well, that's really super aggravating. Um, (laughs) you know, it, I think, I think it works really well when you're doing, um, in, uh, you know, a hospital setting in 2010, right. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that actually works particularly well. Uh, the danger, uh, in not doing the deep dive, you know, on this one or not pushing, uh, the, the, the narrative forward is it feels contrived, right? It feels like a way of saying like, you know, we're not going to actually deal uh, with the issues at the time, um, uh, with the issues of, you know, of, of slavery, with the um, limited worth of, of, you know, black folks who rose in stature uh, at the time um, by just saying like, you know, look, we've got, everybody's cool, everybody's in. Um, and uh, it, there's a, there's this sort of um, really thick shellac uh, that's put over um, all of the problems uh, that existed uh, that allow you to just say, you know, we're going to do a period piece 
you know, we're going to modernize it a little bit with some music. We're going to modernize it um, a little bit with um, with some of the wardrobe and the set dressing, you know. So we're, we're going to take um, these big ridiculous gowns and giving them a little, a little touch of tailoring uh, that echoes the, uh, you know, the best of Machino or something. And, um, uh, and, and we're going to leave it at that. Right. And that, that, um, inoculates us, uh, from having to, uh, you know, to, to deal with the fact that we're making a film or a series about, um, a part of history that was still actually really dark, right. You know, a part of history where slavery was still alive and ripe. Right. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and let's just not have that discussion. Let's have the other one instead. Yeah, that, that raises the question. And it's a question that comes up a lot on the nose, too, is to what degree do you penalize uh, an artist or a creator for making a specific choice and going with it? So, in other words, is Shonda Rhimes and her collaborators, uh, are they allowed to make something like this uh, that's an indulgence? Uh, that yeah, it it is isn't as class conscious as working class. I mean, forget about slavery. I mean, you know, most things like Downton Abbey and Upstairs Downstairs and uh, Dickens adaptations mm-hmm. really kind of take more notice of the poor uh, mm-hmm. uh, than this does. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I, I don't know. It's kind of like complaining that Insync doesn't have any girls in it. You know, well, it's because it's a boy band. Um, I just wonder. Uh, and Teresa, maybe you'd want to respond first on this. Like, you know, can we call that a problem or is it a decision that we don't 100 percent respect? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to make the show that Rich is sort of talking about here, it's a different show, right? It's no longer delightful fluff. It is now a show that's tack- like a serious historical drama um, that's telling, you know, history as it as it was. But this is just, you know, it's a romantic comedy, really, in some ways, although it's not that funny. I guess comedy is not the right (laughs) word, but not funny. No, it's more, you know, it's very pride and prejudice, right? It's sort of, uh, if anything, it's a comedy of manners, but it's still not funny. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if Ava DuVernay were making this instead of Shonda Rhimes, it would have been a very different show, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not what Shonda does. She makes these soapy, campy shows, and um, and she's trying to put forth a sort of just normalize that diversity for other people, right? Because she's got so much power. She's got so much power in Hollywood. She's one of the few people who could probably get away with doing this. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I I kind of lean towards what Colin's saying, where it's like, she's got to make a choice. This is either delightful fluff or it's going to tackle serious issues. And she went with delightful fluff. I I do want to say one thing that's crabby. Um, And that is, I'm, I really feel like one of the sort of, you know, formats or tropes that's really played out is that kind of couple overcomes one obstacle after another obstacle after another obstacle. And I don't know how deep uh, you guys got into this, but, you know, mm-hmm. like it, in episode five, where really all of this stuff has kind of been resolved, they still have this, the, the two leads have this one moment where they just, they don't 
realize that the other person loves them. They just can't seem to figure that out. They're standing mm-hmm. in an inn when this happens. And you're, I'm just sitting there thinking, enough. You're together. <laughs> enough. <laughs> they, stop pretending that there are hurdles that you have to get over because it's just no longer plausible. Uh, but so just very quickly, we got to go to a break. It's relationship but, uh, theater, Count. Yeah, relationship theater. <laughs> I guess. I mean, so Rich, uh, just to, in, in his uh, very few words, would you recommend that another person watch this? Absolutely. I thought it was su- super fun. With all my critiques of it, it's super fun, and I'd recommend people read all of the tweets that um, that uh, Bean Guy put out for the same reason. You know, uh, it's it's amusing. Yeah. Uh, Teresa, how about you? I think so, especially if you already like Shonda. Like, I I don't particularly like a lot of her shows. I find some of them downright unwatchable, but this one I thought was really just kind of fun and maybe perfect for the moment where that's what you need. You need just delightful fluff all right uh well we'll we'll be back with some more uh fluff delightful or otherwise uh, after this break Uh, thanks very much to the person who's uh, in the studio making the whole thing happen. That would be Kat, the Duchess of Pastor, uh, and uh, the producer of this episode would be uh, Lord McPants. Uh, and uh, thanks uh, also to our terrific panelists, Rich Holland uh, and uh, Teresa Kramer. Uh, before we make recommendations, no, I won't do it. Never mind. Well, let's get right into the recommendations. Rich, uh, you go first. Sure. Um, so uh, I think in response to all of these sort of um, manufactured theatrical uh, narratives that we were talking about today on all three segments, um, I'm going to go uh, the complete opposite way with my recommendations and recommend uh, two really smart documentaries of um, absolutely brilliant people. Um, uh, the first one is on Netflix and it's called... Uh, uh, what happened, Miss Simone? Uh, it's uh, it's about uh, Nina Simone and addresses the intersections of like freedom and constraints and the mental illness that kind of hangs in the balance of the two. Um, and the other one, uh, I think it's PBS, uh, but it's uh, uh, Carlos Almaraz uh, playing uh, with fire. It's a Chicano street artist. Um, part of the uh, street art movement. Uh, you're going to hear uh, Edward James Amos peppered throughout this. Shepard Ferry shows up. Um, and uh, it's just so much uh, joy and beauty and perseverance and, um, you know, in a, in a great little narrative. Uh, recommend both of those. All right. See the title of the second one again? Carlos Almarez mm. Playing with Fire. All right. Um, the first one, what happened to Simone? All right. So uh, on to you, Teresa Kramer, some recommendations for us. So the actress in in Bridgerton who plays Penelope is Nicola Coughlin, who is also in Dairy Girls. And I've finally just gotten on that bandwagon. I've been hearing for years how funny it is, but because their Irish accents are so heavy, I have to be paying 100% attention to the TV to understand what's going on at any given time. And so I've been putting it off, but I finally started watching it and it's such a funny take on a dark time. Um, But then also all of the the cast of Dairy Girls was recently on one of the holiday editions of the Great British Baking Show that's on Netflix. 
And again, they are hilarious. Nicola Coughlin's on there, plus, you know, I have five or six other cast members, and most of them can't bake to save their lives. And it's just them all being hilarious and funny for an hour. And I can't recommend it enough. All right. So Dairy Girls. Okay. So um, I'm going to, first of all, I want to mention that I have this kind of conspiracy theory uh, that's bothering me. So there's uh, Phoebe Bridgers, a musician I really admire and kind of got in on the ground floor with Phoebe Bridgers. And she's terrific. And then Fleabag was done by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And now we have Bridgerton where the lead actress is named Phoebe. Somebody is messing with us right now. Somebody <laughs> is doing something. There's, I'm, I'm now starting Phoebanon, my new conspiracy movement that does believe something like bad is happening. So, uh, Last night we were recording Midless Podcast, uh, which is uh, anchored by uh, Rebecca Castellani and Teresa Kramer. And it made me think about reading, which I do less and less of all the time. I read for the show. I read to get ready for the show, but I don't read. But I am reading right now a novel by Kevin Wilson called Nothing to See Here. Uh, the, the premise uh, is that it's uh, uh, about someone who's brought in to kind of babysit uh, or be a governess, uh, as it is said, for the, in Tennessee for these two children who uh, frequently catch on fire. They burst into flame uh, because of their emotions. And, uh, and it's terrific and it's fun. Uh, and I'm having a great time reading it. All right. We're done. We're out of time. Thanks to Rich. Uh, thanks to Teresa. Thanks to you. And we got to go. said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.